0: Yeah, it's good to be here tonight, guys and, uh, and girls, and we're just excited to, to bring the Word tonight and talk to you about Jesus, and uh, we are a Bible-believing church, uh, Jesus following, people serving, Christian church, and uh, we just want to get into the Word tonight and see what the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to us tonight, so I just want to ask you to surrender your hearts tonight, ask what God wants to do in you. Because every night he wants to do something new in each and every one of us. Every single day that we get up, we have an opportunity to encounter God. And many of us live our lives passive and we think that, you know, maybe God is not actively speaking to us or in us or for us, uh, people around us. But if we look at our lives and if we look at the rhythms and the people and the encounters, God is everywhere. He's active. He's speaking. He's moving. But are you looking for him? And so I just want you to, to pray in your heart tonight with me that the Holy Spirit would show up and he would just begin to move as we study his word. Would you do that with me? Right, let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we're just approaching your throne boldly, God. And we're asking you to, to move in our hearts tonight, to, to stir something up, God, to do something uh, afresh. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just fall down in a new way in our lives and that we would just begin to surrender um, the burdens and the cares and the, and the things that bring us down and the discouragements and failures of life that that build up over time and that just keep us in a state of anxiety, of depression, of sadness, of grief, whatever it is, God, whatever we brought here tonight, I'm just asking you in the name of Jesus that you would just set us free, that you would just liberate us, that you would just empower us by your spirit, and we're just asking it in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen, 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 thanks, Paige, for holding it down for us back there, appreciate you. So I've been I've been working through the the Proverbs this week, and if you're not familiar with streets Light Bibles, it's called Streetlight. Have you heard of that? Streetlight. Maybe put if you have never heard of it, put up your put up your hand if you've never heard of it. Streetlights. All right. So you guys got to get down. You got to go on Spotify or whatever you use to 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 stream music or whatever like that. You got to check it out. It's like the most fluid audio Bible you'll ever listen to. And it's just, they got some beats in the background as it's playing and different narrators. It's just so good. No, it's, it's, you'll love it. I'll love it. You'll love it. It's so good. And it's just so easy to listen to. And I've been going through the book of Proverbs and I've just been listening to Proverbs chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, just the whole way through. And it's just been, it's something when you listen to the Bible, you know, when you read something and you read a small little pericope or a little paragraph unit, uh, you know, and then you kind of meditate on it, but it's a different story altogether when you're just able to kind of listen to the whole sweeping narrative of an entire chapter or entire book. You know what I mean? It's, it's very powerful. So I've been reading through the, the Proverbs, and this, this week, I don't know, the, the Lord, we've been talking about salt and light, right? We've been talking about salt and light, and, and what did Jesus mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth, right, and you are the light of the world? right? What do you mean by that? So this series that we've been working through week by week, we've been breaking it down, what that looks like. And Ian broke down an amazing message last week on the story of Noah and what Noah was to his day to be salt and to be light, to be a preservative, literally to preserve the the, the future of the world through the ark, right? And now he paralleled how Jesus is the ark. And if we have Jesus, we will travel, we will make it to our port of destiny on time and safely. So it was a powerful message last week, but I've been, we've been waking our way through this series, and one of the, I think, the greatest things that keeps us, that hinders us from being the salt and being the light of the earth is failure. Now, now, put up your hand if you've ever failed before. Yeah, I think all of us, at one time or another, we've all fallen, we've all fallen short, we all have our shortcuts. Yeah, somebody put it, Christian was just chilling right here, he said, uh, I hold it down. But we've all fallen short at one point or, or another in our lives, and, and we've all stumbled, and we have, we've we failed to meet the mark. And if you're familiar with the, 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 the Greek word or the, the idea of sin, sin literally means to miss the mark. Did you know that? Sin literally means to miss the mark. And the Bible tells us that we are all falling short of the glory of God, and we've all sinned. That's what it says. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, each and every single one of us here tonight, we have all missed the mark. Did you know that we've all failed. In fact, we are in one sense failures. But we have really good news. The Bible also teaches this in Proverbs chapter 24. It says, "For though the righteous fall 7 times," somebody say 7. "For though the righteous fall 7 times, they rise again." Come on, somebody. That's I love that. "Though the righteous fall 7 times, guess what? They rise again. But the wicked stumble" When calamity strikes. Wow. Now, seven, the interesting about the number seven in the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, seven represents what? Completion, perfection, wholeness. In other words, even though the righteous man falls again and again and again and again and again and again and again, in the fullest consummation of the sense, seven, he gets back up again. See, he might be a complete failure, but he keeps getting back up. And that's what defines him. That's what defines righteousness. The righteous man falls that many times, but he keeps getting back up. But I think sometimes we allow failure and discouragement and past defeat to keep us from what? From being the salt, the light. From keep us from from living out our God-given purpose, our God-given destiny, right? To be, to be the light of the world. But if left unchecked, we gotta be very careful because failure bit by bit, a little bit here, a little bit there, failure will bit by bit Snuff out the light of your life unless you allow the failure to fuel you, not to fracture you. To fuel you, not to fracture you. I love what, I'm a big sports guy, you know, we, we, we hoop, right baby, we hoop. And Michael Jordan, one of the greatest athletes of all time, not just in the, in the game of basketball, but literally one of the greatest athletes of all time, he's quoted as saying, I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed again and again and over and over in my life, and that is why I succeed. That is why I succeed. Or Steve Jobs, another uh, modern, another contemporary uh, um, success story. Uh, Steve Jobs has, has been quoted as saying, I didn't see it then, but it turned out that getting fired from Apple was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to me. He said, it's impossible to fail if you learn. It's impossible to fail if you learn. Kobe Bryant. I was listening to an interview he once gave. He was my, my my favorite athlete growing up. Kobe Bryant. We had similar names, so it was like the name thing. It was like Kobe. Someone was like, oh, "You like you like basketball? You like you know Kobe Bryant?" I was like, "Yeah, I like Kobe. I got the same name. I love Kobe Bryant." Um, and he he said something that shocked me one time. He said, in an interview, he said, "There's no such thing as failure," and I was like, "What do you What do you mean by that?" Like what what, what did he He's like, "There's no such thing as failure. Failure is a figment of our imagination." Because if we are a student of life, if we are a disciple, you can never fail. You can only ever learn. There's no such thing as failure. It's just a learning moment. It's just the bedrock to grow. It's just the, the, the foundation for another step forward, another stepping stone to, to learn how to do it better, to, to learn what not to do, to learn to do this thing a little bit better. And that struck me. Failure doesn't exist. If we're students of the game of life, if we're students of our discipleship of Jesus, everything that we do that misses the mark, you hear me? Missing the mark. Everything that we do when we miss the mark is one opportunity to learn how to follow Jesus more faithfully, how to follow him with greater conviction, with greater passion, with greater fervor, how to follow him more fully. There's no such thing as as failure. Albert Einstein says, success is failure in progress. I love that one. And as a scientist or a physician, you know, that's coming again and again, learning what, what, you know, what works, what doesn't work. What mixtures go together, what mixtures don't go together. Um, And I had a lot of basketball coaches kind of growing up, a lot of different uh, mentors of mine who kind of trained me in different ways. And we used to bring in these mental, uh, they were called like mental toughness coaches. Like they're the guys that just kind of like sit you down and just kind of drill you and see where your mindset's at. Because basketball is really just 90% confidence and 10% skill. It really is. Like most sports, it's a lot of confidence and it's very little skill. But if you have the confidence to back up the skill, you're going to be a phenomenal player. And so it takes a lot of mental toughness to push past failure. And mental toughness is so much deeper than pushing past through pain and fatigue, although that's a big part of it. But initially, I like what there's called the four C's of peak performance in basketball. We call these the four C's. There's confidence composure, commitment, and concentration. Those are the four C's for peak performance. And a true definition of mental toughness incorporates those four C's. And the first confidence is crucial when referring to mental toughness because you will listen to me very carefully. You will never outperform your belief system. See where I'm going with this? You will never outperform your belief system. That what you think about yourself about your God, about your circumstance, that what you think about your life, about your, 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 your discipleship of Jesus, is perhaps the most important thing about you. What you think about the character of God, what you think about your, your, your thought patterns, your, your belief system, is perhaps one of the most significant things that will determine your trajectory in life. And so if, if your talent level is high, but your confidence or your belief system is subpar or low, then your performance will only reach as high as the level of your self-belief, regardless of how talented or how how charismatic or how how great you are. If your belief system, if your confidence level is low, you will never fully live up to the potential that you have inside of you. And I think that's very important because performance always follows belief. It's not the other way around. And then there's also these three Fs that we talk about in mental toughness in the game, in the sport of basketball. First is flush. We call it the flush. So when a, when a mistake is made on defense or on offense, we must acknowledge the mistake, but also be kind to ourselves. For example, like, ah, oh, why did I do that? Or I'm better than that. I won't, I won't make it, I won't do it again. I won't, it won't happen again. That's the flush. You see the mistake, you acknowledge the mistake, you remember it, but you're kind to yourself, and you flush it down the toilet, right? The next thing you must do is the fix. To fix the mistake. So how can I fix the mistake so that it does not reoccur again? A mistake is simply an event in which the full benefits. I love what this, this is. I don't know where I, where I heard this from before. But it says, the mistake is simply an event in which the full benefits have not yet been put towards my advantage. So it's, it, it happened. But it's only a mistake if I live there, if I don't learn from it, if it hasn't been put towards my good, if it hasn't been put towards my advantage, how can I fix the mistake so that it does not reoccur again? And finally, the last step is forget the mistake and move on. And so there is something, if you look at all these athletes, all these entrepreneurs, Steve Jobs, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, whatever it is, you look at all these athletes or entrepreneurs, there is something incredibly instructive and redemptive behind failure, behind failure. Now, somebody look to your neighbor and say, it's, it's okay to fail. Say, it's okay to fail. See, there, there, have been, there have been personal times in my life where I've experienced the, the pain of, of making poor choices or decisions or actions. And in these moments, it can be incredibly easy to think that, oh no, I've blown it, right? The notion that I've messed up, that God can't use me, and there's no hope for restoration. I think we all face these feelings when we fail, when we fall. And I remember thinking back in, in when 2015, I was extremely depressed, I was going through a very hard season in my life. Um, And I remember thinking that I had reached such a low point that God couldn't possibly use me, that God couldn't possibly use me in such a position, in such a state of depression, in such a state of failure. I felt like just a total loss. But what I didn't realize was that was actually one of the most fruitful seasons of ministry, that God was actually working behind the scenes, and that even though that was a scene in my life, it didn't define the story that I would live in. Even though that was just a glimpse, it was just a snapshot of the story. That, sto- that scene doesn't define the trajectory, the story, the narrative of my life. That God was moving despite what I saw in front of me, despite the snapshot that was before me. And so failure keeps people from thinking that they can be the salt and the light that we can serve as an agent of God's grace and God's goodness. And I want to talk tonight, and if you've got your Bibles, we're going to pop it up on the screen here. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This will be our kind of our text for tonight to lay the groundwork. And then we're going to build off of this text of Hebrews chapter 11 and look at some of the characters of the Old Testament that it it talks about here. So pop it open to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start in verse verse 7. But just to give you a little bit of a background uh, glimpse of what's going on in the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews... If you're not familiar with it, the letter of Hebrews was written as a word of encouragement to Jewish converts who were being tempted to give up their faith in Jesus and to revert back to Judaism. They were getting really, really discouraged by persecution under the Roman Empire. They were getting really discouraged because of of, uh, just some confusion that was breaking out in their communities. And they were getting really discouraged that it was really hard to persevere in their faith in Jesus despite the hardships and disappointments that they had been encountering and persecutions. And so, most likely we think Paul wrote this letter, and Paul is writing to these discouraged Jewish um, converts to Christianity, and he's trying to encourage them to keep persisting in their faith, despite the things, the circumstances, the hardships, the disappointments, the failures all around them. He's saying, don't be discouraged, keep on going, keep on trusting, keep your eyes, maybe you heard this before, fixed on Jesus." Right? So you can keep your eyes fixed on your circumstances, but that's not going to do you a lot of good. See, if you keep your eyes fixed on your circumstances, what consumes your thought life? Your circumstances. But if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, what consumes your thought life? Jesus. And I want to keep my thoughts fixed on Jesus because he elevates my thoughts to a higher reality. See, if I think just on the things of this world and I get caught up in the, in the itty-bitties, the little things that keep me down discouraged, right? The little things that happen, the little, the little mundane things that just keep on chipping away, keep on building discouragement. If I keep my eyes fixed on the discouragement, on the failures, on the mistakes, what happens to my, to my mindset? it begins to shrink down to the level of my circumstance, to the level of my thinking. But if I can think upward and inward and forward in Christ, if I can keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the one who makes perfect the faith that is within me, if I can keep my eyes fixed on Him, guess what? He's going to do something new to restore my mindset, right? Because it's a transformation of the mind as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He literally renews your mind. He literally renews our thought life. He literally makes it new again. And so what are you what are you meditating on? What are you thinking about? Where where is your thoughts? Where are your thoughts at? Is it on the word of God? Or is it on, you know, the deceitfulness of your own heart, what your heart thinks about your situation? Because Jeremiah talks about that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? That means that there's things inside of our hearts that, that lie to us, that, that say certain things to us that just simply aren't in alignment with God's Word. And so we have to realign, and we have to have a shift in our hearts to, to get ourselves recalibrated to what the Word of God is saying. Because that's the truth, not what I feel, not what I, what I think is true, Not what I, but what, what does the Bible say? What does the Word of God tell me is true? So it takes a recalibration. And so Paul is trying to say, I need you to recalibrate your thinking. I need you to get your thought life back into alignment with the Word of God, not on your discouragement. So Paul's writing to these discouraged Jewish converts to Christianity, and he's telling them to persevere, to keep going. And so chapter 11 is known as the great faith chapter. I call it the hall of faith. The hall of faith. We call it the hall of fame, but it's the hall of faith right so that there's these great men and great women right these heroes of the faith and Paul outlines them and he he points to them as an example for believers a cloud of witnesses he says to keep on going as an example of those who are predecessors who have gone before us who who ran this race of faith who had the torch of faith and Passed down from generation to generation, they ran this race of faith with, with hope, with confidence in Jesus. And he says, look at the predecessors before you. Look at the great cloud of witnesses. Keep on running because you're, you're part of a, an ongoing narrative of Christian history, of Bible-believing people, Jesus-loving, people-serving, God-serving people who just kept on going, who kept on believing the best. And he says... And then chapter 12, he moves the spotlight from the heroes of faith back then to the readers in the here and now. But I want to look really qu- really quickly at these heroes of faith. So this is in, in chapter 11, verse 7. It says, by faith, this was Noah's, this was Ian's, Ian's ver- uh, verse last week, right? By faith, Noah, by faith, Noah, what did he do? When warned about the things not seen. Faith is having what? Confidence. Faith is having hope. Faith is having belief in the things that are not seen. Right? Look at this. Faith is seeing past what I see and seeing a higher reality. Oh, come on, somebody. Faith is seeing past your circumstance. Faith is seeing past what is into what will be. Faith is seeing past, faith is calling out those things that be not as though they were. Oh. I'm just preaching to myself right now. Good luck. Yep. Yeah. Amen. Faith is calling forth those things that be not as though they were. I see it even though I don't see it right in front of me right now. I believe it to be true even though it's not my current reality. It's going to it's gonna happen. I'm going to get there. I'm elevating my thoughts. I'm believing God for more. I'm trusting. I'm knowing. I'm seeing even though it's not. When warned about these things, not yet seen. In holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and he became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah, so Noah, tell me about Noah. A drunk cursed his children. What else did he do? Cursed his son. The point is, Noah was far from perfect. Noah was far from perfect. But here in the hall of faith, it's saying, Man, he was such a great man of faith. He was such a great, a great, a great person of conviction, of, of faith, and it outlines him, be like Noah. Look at what Noah did. But Noah was a, in a lot of ways, Noah was a failure in a lot of ways. Look at this next verse. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Next verse. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Next verse. For he was looking forward. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. You see the language. You see the language. He was looking what? He was looking forward to something else. He was looking ahead. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. He was looking to what God was building, not what his own hand could build. He was looking to what God could do, what God could orchestrate, what God could be the architect of, what, what God could make. Not what he could do right in front of him. He was looking forward to something beyond his current situation. And let me tell you this. Look, here we go. Sarah again. Let me tell you. Abraham. Abraham didn't believe the word of God. He failed in believing the promises of God for his life. Did you know that? That is saying how great of a faith Abraham had. But let me tell you, Abraham was far from perfect. He was far from perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. He made a lot of mistakes. God says you're going to give... You know your 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 wife at a good old age Abraham is going to give birth to a son, and, and he shall be the, the the seed through which the promise will reign, right? And what did he Abraham do? He said, at that age, at our old age, I'm going to have a son. Sarah said, at my old age, I'm going to have a son. And they said, nope. And what did they do? They found Hagar, Hagar, however however you want to call him, Hagee. And they had. They said we're gonna. We're not gonna believe in what God's word says for our lives. We're gonna take our own destiny into our own hands, and so we're gonna find a situation that's gonna really accommodate what we think is best. You see what they did? They manipulated the word of God because they didn't think that the word of God was powerful enough. That God's promises was true enough to accomplish that which He said. And they didn't believe, and so they got Hagar in to, to, bear, to bear a son, and that's a whole different story. Now you have. The, the, you have this, this 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 ongoing tension for years because of Abraham's disobedience to God. There's always consequences to our failure. At the same time, when we disobey God, because it doesn't free us from the consequences, right? God's faithful, but it doesn't free us from the consequences. And now we have Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and we have Isaac, right? Through whom the promises, through whom the Jewish nation would be born, right? Through whom you know God's promises would be made, and Joseph and all the all the, all the homies would come through the line of Isaac. But now we have the tension. Between Palestine and Israel, literally the father of Palestine is Ishmael, and the father of Israel is Isaac. And now look at the Middle East for years and years and years, centuries, millennia, the tensions between the two nations, one coming from Isaac and the other coming from Ishmael. Talk about consequences to your decisions. Talk about that. every decision has consequence, but God is good nonetheless, because God says, "Abraham trusted me." He said, he left his country, He left his homeland. See, God sees the potential in all of us. He sees that He looks for the good. I really believe that God sees the good. He doesn't. He doesn't look at your shortcomings because He doesn't look it through the lens of yourself. He looks it through the lens of His Son. So He sees your life through the perfection of Jesus when you claim to have faith in Him. And so Abraham was a failure in a lot of ways, but he just kept going. And Sarah the same. Sarah, by faith, it says, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered Him faithful, who had made the promise. At first shot, she didn't wasn't faithful. Second shot, she got back up. She rose again. She chose to believe God. Next verse. By faith Jacob, we'll jump to verse twenty-one. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Next verse. Now, J- now Jacob. By the way, Jacob. Oh man, he stole something, didn't he? He was a liar and a cheat and a stealer. Yet the Bible says that he was full of faith. Isn't that incredible? He stole Esau's inheritance. He lied to his father, right? And at the same time, the Bible outlines him as a hero of faith. There's something that the Bible is trying to speak to us tonight. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Let's keep going. By faith, Moses' parents hid him. Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Next verse. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now look at this. By faith, Moses Moses killed a man, was a murderer. Yet God used him nonetheless to deliver the children of Israel, to do great things to cross the sea on dry ground, to deliver the people of God that would bring about the Messiah. But he made mistakes. He was a failure. Next verse. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Let's keep going. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed by the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She was a prostitute, but the Bible says by faith, by faith, by faith. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson. Oh, don't get me started on Samson now. Don't even get me started on Japheth and about David and Samuel and the prophets and all the homies who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. I think that's it, right? I think that's right. I think that's the last one. But the point is here, look at all these people of faith. My main point here is all these people of faith all made mistakes, each and every single one of them, and a lot of them made a lot bigger mistakes than you and I have ever made. I mean, sin is sin, but I think there's different levels, there's different consequences to the level of sin that we commit, and murder is not the same as lying. There's a different, the end result is the same, but murder is much more significant in its consequence, and its effect, and its severity than lying is, for example. But nonetheless, everyone, all of these heroes of faith, all fell short at one point or another in their journey. But they're outlined as heroes of faith. Men and women who did great things for the kingdom of God, despite the things that they failed in. And so, some of the biggest groups I know are in Hebrews chapter 11. Their mess or failures didn't define them because their faith in God's faithfulness and promises define them over their own failure and shortcoming. And so I want to outline here today three biblical characters who prove that failure isn't fatal and who failed forward. Somebody look to your neighbor and say, fail forward. Fail forward, somebody forward. Don't fail backward. I need you to fail forward. I need you to keep stumbling ahead. I need you to keep rolling. even if you like the snow and you just you, you know when you start a snowball, right? and you, you kind of build it up and then you roll it down the hill, oh you guys are fr- oh, that's Portland. You don't have snow here, really, do you? Not really, You don't really have snow. It like snows, then it just melts, right? Okay, well let me take you back to my motherland. Oh Canada, let me tell you a story. No, nah, like we were just creating these huge huge snowballs. We'd start the we start kind of rolling them up and we get them about this big. And then once we get them about this big, we go up this huge hill and we just start rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and all of a sudden it's gone. It literally just goes and it's by the time it gets to the bottom it's like a, you know, you can build a snowman out of it. It's huge, right? But you got to learn how to fail and fall forward. Don't fall on your back and stay back. Fall on your back to look up and get up again, right? Fall on your back to look up and say, I might be down, but I ain't staying down. And these three biblical characters prove that failure isn't fatal and that they can fail forward. Look at King David. Let's talk about King David. It say King David. It didn't even get me started on King David, right? So King David, there's no question that King David is one of the Bible's most important figures, the son of David. Jesus is called the son of David, right? The root of Jesse, right? And it's easy to be inspired by his youthful willingness to fight Goliath and his his tender friendship with Jonathan and and his wonderful Psalms and poetic literature. And he was so well-versed and well-said and so much of the Bible is is, is literally written by him and his enduring patience under the wicked King Saul. But let me tell you about David. 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 It's hard to fathom that this beloved character of, of, of the Scripture, who's spoken of so highly, a man that is called, is a man after God's own heart. I, I find this fascinating. I find this fascinating. A man who's called, a man after God's own heart, that in more than half of the Bible's books, would also be guilty of breaking half of God's commandments. Look at this. David in, 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 in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 2 through 3. David coveted Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he committed adultery with him, with her. And look what happens. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. So David saw, David desired, and then David got because he could. He had the power. He was king of Israel. This is why it's so important. When you're put in a position of power, you have greater responsibility to be faithful to the Word of God because when you're in a position of power, you can also are in a position to destroy to hurt, to harm. You're also in a position to heal, to restore, to bring justice and restoration. Power, with great power comes much responsibility. I think it's in Spider-Man. <laughs> I can't remember where I heard that from. That's how that's in Spider-Man. That's not in the Bible. That's not we're gonna use it nonetheless. It's not in the Bible. So, so <laughs> I love Spider-Man. <laughs> I love Spider-Man. So here's the principle. Here's the principle. When the So look at this, not only did he stop there, he coveted, right, broke the commandment, committed adultery, broke the commandment, stole her from Uriah, broke the commandment, lied to Uriah in the subsequent verses, and eventually in the subsequent verses, I think we have, I don't think we have chapter 12, verse 9 in there, but he murdered Uriah. He coveted adulterer, stealer, liar, murderer, yet a man after God's own heart. What is going on? A man after God's own heart, after all of that? How can it be? Like, I don't get it. How can that actually, how can that be? A man after God's own heart broke all those commandments, murdered, lied, cheated, stealed. I don't get it. When the prophet Nathan confronts David, look what happens. When the prophet Nathan confronts David for his depravity, he immediately repents. Mm -hmm. Confessing his sin. And when the son that is born to David and Bathsheba gets sick, David fasts. And he prays and he mourns his sin in an effort to see God heal the boy. And the chi- when the child dies, David simply receives this outcome as somewhat of God's judgment. And that's a whole different theological tangent we won't get down to. But um, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. So here's the principle: so failure doesn't get the last word. Failure doesn't get the last word because when we have sinned, we must recognize it and repent. We must learn from it. We must be trained by it. We must redirect, and I love what repentance, this is what repentance literally means. Repentance, in in Hebrew, the word is shub, and it literally means to turn around, to turn around, and it's used in the context of I'm walking away from God's will for my life, and I am seeing that. I recognize that. Someone corrects me. Someone can tell, calls it out in me and says, look, brother, this is not God's will for your life. And what happens is I'm walking away from God into a life far from him. And shub, or repentance, turns me back into the direction which is life-giving, which is, which is Jesus following, which is, which is the power and abundant life that God would have you live. Shub and repentance creates you, brings you back into the presence of God. And so David recognized it. He repented, he confessed, and God forgives. But God doesn't save David from the consequences of his own conduct. But if we've abandoned this behavior and are willing to accept the consequences, God will still use us. God will still use you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how many commandments you've broken. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. But God will still use you when you come to his throne and say, Jesus, I recognize it. I'm a sinner. I need grace. I can't do this on my own. Recognize it. Repent. Turn from your behavior toward God. Change of behavior. Change of heart. Or if you look at look at this other example, Paul, the Apostle Paul, Paul who had become the writer of most of the New Testament books. He literally wrote most of the New, I think it's like 70%, 75% or 80% of the New Testament. Saul uh, of Tarsus, a terror To the early church. Not only was he present when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, right? But he gives his approval. Like, that's the guy. Kill him. Like, throw the stone. Go for it. And he gives his approval of the murder in Acts chapter 7, verses 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. That's Stephen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would later be called Paul. Because God would do something new in him. Someone who, while they were, sh- they were stoning, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And that's just, that's just akin to when Jesus was on the cross, right? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold them this sin against them. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. You see the parallelism here. So when he had said this, he fell asleep. So wh- what's, what's really crazy here? is that, oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. In Paul standing by and approving the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, in a sense, the author of Acts is saying, Jesus was present. Jesus was there. If you have done this unto the least of these, you have done this unto me. Do you see that? Paul, in other words, is is in a sense guilty of murdering Jesus because Stephen was a follower. So, you see where we see that parallelism. So Stephen or Paul is responsible for the murder of the first Christian martyr, and it says Paul approved of their killing of him. Like the full nation, like the entire nation of Israel who was calling out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate was asking, what do you want me to do? He said, crucify him, crucify him. And it says, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Look at this. This is crazy. When you see some of the greatest suffering, when you see some of the greatest failures, when you see some of the greatest disappointments that could possibly happen in your life, sometimes it's the seed to some of God's greatest blessings. Sometimes it's the seed to some of God's greatest victories, some of God's greatest outcomes. That the seed of persecution, listen, that that the seed of persecution became the birthing place for the spreading of the gospel to the nations. The diaspora—they spread out. They told the good news of Jesus. They spread out because of persecution, and so it was—it 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 was Saul that was responsible for for killing and destroying the church, and going door to door. He later went on and going door to door in Jerusalem, looking for people who followed Jesus, so that he could throw them into prison. <laughs> like a guy who was killing Christians, right? Not just someone who made a, a, a few small mistakes, a few small a small missteps he hated christians he went after christians he hated the movement of jesus and he says i'm gonna snuffle this out no matter what it takes (laughs) we're talking about somebody you hear what i'm saying and after putting these people into prison he planned to hunt down the christians they sent mail to and on his way he had encountered with the resurrected christ and once you encounter jesus guess what the rest is history The rest is history. Once you come in contact with a a genuine encounter with the risen Savior, it doesn't matter what you've done because you can't live there anymore. Because God has something new for you. He is recreating you. He is making you out to be a new creation. And and Paul became a new creature, and, and, and Jesus gives him the name. He's not called Saul anymore. He's called Paul to represent the transformation that God is doing inside of him. And it says, Paul, did Paul regret his behavior before meeting Jesus? How could he not? In his letter to Timothy, look what he says. First Tim, chapter 1, verse 15. It says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He says, of whom I am the worst. It doesn't get much worse. He says, another translation says, I am the chiefs of sinners. Like, he is the upper echelon of all sinners out there. The things that he did were not okay. Next verse. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, the worst of failures, the one who missed the mark so many times, the one who just missed it again and again and again and again, so that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Even in our failure, even in our sin, God is glorified in that he is so much greater than our sin and shame. He, where where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That God is literally glorified When you repent and turn back to Jesus and you say, God, I had it wrong. I want to get it right. I'm throwing myself at your feet. That God says, there's more than enough grace for you, child. There's more than enough grace. There's more than enough blood. There's more than enough saving, atoning power for your life. You see that? And Paul Paul represents perfectly. The principle here is that for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ even later in life, there are bound to be reasons that you feel unqualified for the service in the gospel ministry. But the truth is, the gospel is so powerful that our transformation becomes a profound testimony to God's goodness and God's grace. God's goodness and God's grace is so much greater. And this is the last example I'm going to leave you here tonight. Peter, oh, Peter, Peter! Look at this—one of Jesus' homies, one of his best bros. Like Peter was chilling, Randy. Peter was chilling with Jesus all the time. He was hanging out with him. He saw him. He lived with him. They, 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 they lived under the same roof together. They ate together. They drank together. They hung up together. They played Super Mario together. They did it all. They did it all. Like the, the, the victories that they had, the, the healings that they saw, they, 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 the laboring, the co laboring, the, 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 the amazing things, the healings, the, 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 just everything together. They did it all. His homie, his comrade, his boy. Peter was the biggest personality in any room. He was loud and, and, and just annoying. But it's, it's no wonder that he, he would join James and John as one of, of Jesus' closest friends, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved the most. And, and confidants. And in fact, he was the only disciple willing to, to try walking on water. When Jesus called him out on the water, he was the only disciple to actually step out of the boat and say, Okay, Lord, I'm coming. I'm coming to see what it's like to water ski without a, without a boat. You know what I mean? That was him. And he was one of the first to call Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. A lot of good stuff he did. But look at this. When Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him, Peter proudly rebuffs him. He says, Lord, surely not I. Even if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to be right by your side, right? And that very night after Jesus is arrested, someone confronts Peter in the courtyard of the Sanhedrin and accuses him of being a follower of Christ. And what happens? Just as Jesus predicted, because Jesus is never wrong, right? Jesus predicted Peter denies him how many times? Not once, not twice, but trois, three times. And the third time, he curses his accusers. <laughs> They're like, are you associated with this man? And he's like, curse you. That is how aggressive he wanted to separate himself from Jesus. Oh my goodness, I don't understand. At one moment, he's like, Lord, even if I'll leave you, I won't. And then they're like, do you follow Jesus? And he's like, curse you. How do you go from this to that? And then I'm thinking, how many of us go from this to that? Living the life in worship, in prayer, spending time at the throne, being with him, singing the songs, coming to church, doing the right things. And then we walk out the door and we live a life that is so contrary to the words that we profess on our lips. How is it that we are like Peter? We look at Peter, and we say, Peter, you suck. We, we are Peter. We deny. We deny Jesus. We reject him. We are responsible. I see myself in Peter again and again and again and again and again, but even though I just see a scene of Peter's life that looks like failure. I know the story isn't finished. Just because I see a scene that looks like a mistake, God redeems Peter's life. God will redeem your story. God will take that scene from your life and use it for his glory. And what happens next? Peter, look at this. The fact that Peter denied Jesus Proves that Jesus is worth following to Peter. (laughs) You will deny me three times. Peter's like, okay. (laughs) I'll tell you things now, and even though you don't understand them, you will one day. So, Peter denies Jesus, and Peter is so overwhelmed because in the moment that he denied Jesus, he realizes that Jesus is truly who he said he was the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Alpha and Omega, the Knower of all things, infinite in wisdom and understanding, and that in him he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter was so convicted when he saw that, when he heard that, when he knew that he denied Jesus that many times. And that's in, in Mark 14 but failure doesn't disqualify you even if you've been following Jesus for some time. In Romans eight twenty-eight, it says, and we know that in all things, not in some things, not in most things, but in all things, all things, all things. Somebody look to your neighbor and say, all things. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I can have confidence that my life is in the hands of God. And if my life is in the hands of God, I know as I seek to follow Jesus that even the mistakes, even the blimps, even the failures, even the mess-ups, even the itty-bitties, right? That get in the way, that make me stumble, that make me think that I'm an absolute failure, God is redeeming it. God is, is taking what the enemy meant for evil and he's turning it for your good. The depression, the anxiety, the disappointment, the frustration... All the things that you come here tonight just wondering and worrying about, God is actively beginning to to move and to change and to redeem and to pronounce his verdict over your situation, over over your verdict. He's pronouncing his truth over your own, which is redeeming, redemption. And there's no failure that is too much for Jesus to return to. And I think about this. The band can come up. We're going to close here right now. There is no failure that is too great. Look at this. Jesus is going to the cross and he's going to Golgotha and he's bearing the cross he's bearing the weight of the world the world's sins and the crowds are crying out crucify him crucify him crucify him and what happens is Jesus he takes the ultimate sacrifice they're telling him crucify him crucify him crucify him and the romans they they put stakes into his feet and they put nails into his hands and they lift him up high on a cross. Probably the greatest example to everybody who was watching, the greatest epitome of what it looks like to fail. What it looks like to be a huge disappointment. Everybody had put their faith in him as the promised Messiah. Everybody had put their their faith and confidence in Jesus. And how can this be? Jesus, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the Son of God, we thought you were the Messiah, and here you are on a tree dying. How can this be? What a disappointment, what a failure, what a letdown. And Jesus says, just wait three days, and I'm gonna redeem this failure. I'm gonna redeem this story. It's just a scene. It's just passing for a moment, but this is not where the story ends. It is just the beginning. That on the cross, he, he paid the price, the penalty for your sin and for mine. That he bled and gave up his life. What looked like a failure was really the ransom for the entire sins of the entire world who would put their faith in him. That if you would just believe in Jesus and say, I want your sacrifice on my behalf. That God would take that failure. Everything that you've done. Everything, every mistake. Every sin. Every missing the mark. And he would turn it into righteousness and he would redeem it and he would restore it and he would make it whole again through the blood of jesus because even though that there's good friday even though there's mourning that god is renewing and restoring and sunday is coming the resurrection is coming the hope of the world the redeeming of the world is coming it's coming god asks you don't fail behind, don't fail back, fail forward. Keep moving, keep trusting, keep believing in my power. Jesus, we're praying for you, Father. We're praying in your name, Jesus. We're asking you to bless us tonight. We're asking you to move in our hearts. We're asking you to do something fresh, follow fresh, Holy Spirit. Teach us that our behavior, our failure, our mistakes doesn't define us. What defines us is your redemption. Your restoration, your healing, the healing of the nations took place on the cross, and we're claiming the blood of Jesus over this place right now, Father. We're claiming the blood of Jesus over our lives, over our relationships, over our sin, over our mistakes and our failures. We claim it for ourselves, God. We're convicted in our hearts that we need you, that we need more of you that what we have is not enough. We need more of your presence, more of your power, more of your redeeming spirit in our lives. And I just pray that if we have not yet put our faith in you, God, if somebody here is tonight has not yet put their faith in you, I pray that in their heart of hearts right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I, just, I ask you, if you have never put your faith in Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as Redeemer of your life, with every head bowed, every eye closed. Just put up your hand right now if you want to accept Jesus. If you want to say that Jesus, I just want to accept you right now, God. I want you to be the the, the power of my life. I want you to be the redeemer of my situation. I want you to be that for me, God. I, I, okay, I see your hand right now. I see your hand. Just put it up high, just as we praise him with every head bowed and Every eye closed, God, we're just we're thanking you, God, for what you're doing in our hearts, what you're doing in our mind right now to, to redeem our thinking, to, to bring and elevate our thoughts to a higher platform, which is the platform of heaven, the ways of the kingdom, the truths of your word, God. You're elevating our thoughts right now, and we're claiming that over our lives. And, Jesus, we're asking you to redeem us, to restore us, and to renew us. And we're putting our faith in you, Jesus. We pray in your name.